Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's interview, we're speaking with Orestes Fenticlis, the founder of Ithaca Capital and vice chairman of Mondi, a billion-dollar NASDAQ-listed travel company. Our conversation is a high-energy exploration of Mondi, which went public via SPAC. It's a deep dive into the inefficiencies of the travel industry and a glimpse into some of Oreste's investments in premier hotel properties. Along with talking strategy and economics of deals, Orestes talks us through some of the challenges he's faced. One such challenge was being sued for $200 million by a sitting president relating to the bankrupt Trump Hotel in Panama. Orestes' philosophy and how he approaches obstacles in his life will inspire you. This episode is absolutely worth your time. Now, please note that the information contained in this interview is not financial advice, but for entertainment purposes only. I'm not a financial advisor and make no warranties or representations concerning the accuracy or suitability of the information contained. I recommend that any and all investment decisions be made with the advice of an accredited investment advisor. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this interview with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been supporting the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience. They strive to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, on with the show. Restis, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'm looking forward to our conversation. As I quickly touched on in our pre-call, I had a, you know early part of my career in the hospitality industry, absolutely loved it, was always fascinated with hotels, hotel properties, real estate, and so on. And then I got into the world of finance and have always looked at the industry, but I have never yet interviewed somebody who's gone out there, acquired properties, built up, raised capital, and really done a lot of what you've done, as well as your work and your focus with a company called Mondi. And so that being in the tourism sector as well, I think we're going to have a great conversation, but the best way to start is with an introduction for yourself. And so I'm going to hand it over to you and we'll, we'll get into it. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. My name is Soresis Findiglis. I'm originally from Cyprus, an island close to Greece in the eastern corner of Europe. I am currently the founder and the managing partner of Ithaca Capital Partners, which is a hospitality-focused private equity fund. We only invest in travel and hospitality companies. And I am also the vice chairman of Mondi, which is one of the most exciting travel technology companies out there, which is one of our highest conviction investments. By way of personal background, I live in the U.S. I travel a lot in Caribbean and Latin America. 
And I studied originally law, and then I studied business and an MBA in INSEAD. And, and in the last 15 years or so, I have been in hospitality and travel investing. So what took you from law to the world of, of travel investing and into the position with Mondi and, and really what I would assume was a venture opportunity that got you in there? Like, what's that career path been? Yes. So it's very interesting. It's kind of unorthodox. So like I said, I studied law in Oxford University, which I actually enjoyed a lot. As a matter of fact, I graduated in 2003, first in my class with the highest numerical average that was ever recorded in the history of the university for law. Wow. So naturally, I was seriously considering a career in academia, teaching Roman law in Oxford, until one day I was in a law dinner with Michael Beloff, who at the time in addition to being an academic and president of Trinity College in Oxford, he was a distinguished practicing lawyer. So he asked in that dinner, do you know what is the difference between a successful academic and a successful practicing lawyer? And then he jokingly replied, it's about 5 million English pounds per year. Right? So, <laughs> yeah. so, so instead, you know, instead of becoming an academic, I decided to become a practicing lawyer and I joined Clifford Chance in the London office, which at the time was the largest law firm in England. After a few years of enjoying law, I felt that as a lawyer, even an excellent lawyer had limited opportunities to take the initiative because for the most part, you are responding to the needs of your client. You know, you're more of a service oriented role. So I decided to go back to business school with a view to joining the investment world. I went to INSEAD, which is a business school in France and Singapore. And after finishing my MBA there, I joined private equity and I joined a private equity fund that was investing in hospitality at the time. And then from there, my career followed the path in that sector. And from there, what brought you into Mondi as a deal? And can you give me a bit of a background on the industry? And then actually, I would want to get into the ecosystem of the travel industry. But tell us a bit about Mondi and what you're doing there. Yeah. So effectively, Mondi is a travel technology company and a $3 billion travel marketplace which operates within the overall $2 trillion global travel ecosystem, right? So when we say marketplace, most of your listeners know the likes of Expedia or Booking.com who are known as the online travel agents, right? So what these marketplaces do is they sell full-priced flights and hotels by broadcasting to the entire world in a B2C strategy. They rely on very basic technology, mostly internet-based technology that came from the 90s, and they have very limited service or touch. Also, because they sell directly to the consumer, they tend to compete with the supplier websites. To give you an example, one more hotel booked, say, on Expedia is one less hotel night sold directly by Mario.com, or one more flight sold on Booking.com is one less flight sold directly by AmericanAirlines.com. So... This creates a channel conflict, which kind of permeates the travel industry. By contrast, Mondi's marketplace does not sell directly to the consumer or the whole world. Mondi sells through a number of closed groups. We call them closed groups, such as travel experts, social media influencers, membership organizations, small and medium-sized enterprises to the consumer in a B2B2C strategy. In doing so, we rely on very sophisticated technology and a lot of service. Also, because we do not sell directly to the consumer, but through these closed groups that we discussed, the airlines and the hotels, they find us much more interesting because we have a much more highly targeted approach. I mean, it's like hunting in the zoo as opposed to hunting in the jungle. 
right? Okay. And also more importantly, we do not compete with the sales channels of the airlines and the hotels. So we have this unique B2B2C ecosystem that collaborates with the airlines and the hotels, and they use us mostly to sell their excess capacity, which is very large, 30 40%, depending on the, the market and time of the market, at a discount. So in short, what Mondi does, we solve at the same time the problems for our customers and our suppliers. So our customers are the travel intermediaries, the travel experts. So we created the first modern operating system for the space, which is a bit like, that was a decade ago, is like the movement from MS-DOS to Windows in a way, right? So we introduced the first graphics-based interface that gave a user-friendly interface to the travel intermediaries. And then the second issue that we solved for them, we gave them access to discounted supply of hotels and flights. The issue they had at the time was that they would buy the flights and the hotels at the same price as Expedia or Booking. And that is one of the main reasons for the disruption in the online travel agent space that happened, right? So, so we would solve the issue, the two issues that our customers were facing, which is absence of a modern technology. We gave them the modern graphics-based user-friendly system, and we gave them access to discounted inventory so that they could compete, not just from a service, but also from a price perspective with the big online travel agents. The other issue that, like I discussed, is that we solve the issue for the suppliers, the airlines and the hotels. So we would say, why would the airline and the hotel give you the flight or the hotel room at a discount to what they are giving it to Expedia or Booking, right? And the answer is because we are not competing with these sales channels. So the airlines, like we discussed before, and the hotels, they always have an excess capacity, right? In 2019, on an international travel, 30% of the seats on average would fly empty. So the airline is looking for a way to sell that inventory at a discount without cannibalizing its own sales channels. So, of course, they are not going to put it on their website at a discount. Neither are they going to give it to Expedia or Booking because those guys compete directly with the airline, right? So if the flight or the hotel room is cheaper on Expedia, nobody would be buying directly from the airline. So they are looking for an alternative channel, which is more B2B2C, which is not competing with their own sales channels to distribute this excess capacity inventory at a discount, and this is what Mondi does for the suppliers, for the airlines and the hotels. Wow. Okay. There's lots to unpack here because, you know, I'm fascinated about the travel industry itself because I think as a regular consumer, we see Expedia and the likes of that or direct to the airlines or direct to the hotels. But there is so much behind the scenes there. And a few questions that I have are, you know, in knowing what Mondi does now and just by you know, to quantify the organization, it's got a billion dollar market cap, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Trading on the NYSE. So take us into how you got into this business. What did you see and, and when did you come into that from an investment side and from a leadership side? Yes. So like I discussed before, I'm the founder of Ithaca Capital, which is a hospitality and travel private equity fund. Mostly we own hotels. So in the middle of the pandemic, all the hotels had to shut down, right? So for many of the people in the industry, it felt like, you know, the end of the world, right? So in the midst of that darkness, I basically recall there is this famous parable by Alan Watts, you know, which is like the Chinese farmer. I don't know if you've ever heard the story. Yeah. There is this Chinese farmer that, you know, he has horses and then the horses leave him and the neighbors come and they say, oh, your horses have left you. This is bad, Right. And the Chinese farmer says, perhaps. And then the next day, the horses come back, bringing more wild horses with them, right? So then the neighbors say, oh, you know, this is good. You have more horses now. And the guy says, perhaps. 
Then the next day, his son tries to ride one of the horses and he falls and he breaks his leg. So the neighbors come and they say, oh, this is bad. Your son broke his leg. And he says, perhaps. And then in the next day, there is a war and they come to conscript the young fellows of the village and they cannot take his son because he's injured. So the neighbors come and they say, oh, your son avoided the war. This is good, right? And the guy says, perhaps. So the point of the story is that life is so complex that you can never possibly know what is good or what is bad for you, Hmm. right? At the moment it occurs. So at the time I thought, okay, people think it's bad. My hotels are shut down. We have built a kind of a very large company, a very large private equity fund, but there must be something, you know, analogous to this parable, right? So what I observed at the time was that there was an arbitrage opportunity between private and public valuations, right? So say, for example, you were a company like Expedia Booking or Marriott or one of the big travel companies. Four or five months into the pandemic, these companies started trading very close to their historic highs, their valuations, right? They were shut down. Their revenues were down 90%. And still the public market investors were looking through the pandemic. So as if the pandemic had already come to an end. This is six, seven months into the pandemic. Now in the private domain, if you went to a private company that was in real need of cash, right? And you invested, you wouldn't invest at the same valuation as pre-pandemic. You would invest at a huge discount. So this created a clear arbitrage opportunity between private and public companies. And at the time I thought, okay, so which vehicle was designed in the 90s to take advantage of this arbitrage opportunity between private and public? And there was this thing called a SPAC, which was becoming very popular in 2020, 2021, which is an empty shell company, which now it doesn't have the best reputation because it was excessively used in instances it shouldn't have been used. But at the time it made total sense to raise a SPAC to take advantage of this arbitrage opportunity between private and public valuations. So to find an amazing company in travel that is private, that can be brought to the public market at a fairly big discount to its true valuation, and then after the pandemic, once the pandemic goes away, basically breach this arbitrage between private and public valuations. So we raised this SPAC called called Ethax, together with the founders of a prominent bank in Greece, which is called Axia Ventures, And then that SPAC effectively invested and took Mondi public. Now, what happens most of the times when a company goes public through the SPAC, the principals that do this merger and this public transaction, they tend to take their promote and they leave the picture, right? Yeah. But because I really believe in the company, I think it's the most exciting story out there in travel tech. Not only I stayed in the company as one of the largest shareholders and investor, but I also joined the board of the company as the vice chairman. And because of my experience in mergers and acquisitions, which is a big part of the strategy of this company, I also continue to assist in an executive function by being the chief of corporate strategy and business development. Amazing. Yeah. I really like the foresight there to see that arbitrage opportunity and how effectively the market was already you know, valuing post-pandemic for these big ones, even though earnings are down. But then your private companies are getting crushed. So seeing that led to the opportunity to bring it in. And, and then I also like that you didn't take it for a quick promote and you know dump your stock and move on, right? You've stepped into a major management position. So travel tech, this is something, again, I want to get into because I find it a really interesting industry. Tourism's huge, but I think you know, so many of us just take it for face value of, I go here and I experience this and then I leave. But there's a massive industry behind it. So talk to us about travel tech and and can you talk to me about innovating in the space and how you're using your experience to innovate when it comes to Mondi? Yes. So 
the whole travel market globally is about $2 trillion, right? In size based on 2019 numbers for flights and hotels. Most of the people, like we discussed before, they know the Expedias of this world. They know the direct websites of the airlines, of the hotels, right? What people don't appreciate is that it's less than half of the market. The other bigger half, which is actually growing much faster, is what you said you effectively described as being in the background, right? This other half is the half which includes, for example, when people buy through travel intermediaries or when they buy through membership associations or through an affiliation of some sort or when they apply corporate policies to a transaction through corporate travel. So what we see is that there is a lot of tech debt in the space, tech debt. So effectively, the last innovation that happened was with the online travel agents in the 90s. So these players came together with the internet and they came to dominate and take almost half of the market because they captured the boomers and Generation X, who were the main consumers of travel from the 90s until five or 10 years from today. So by virtue of that, they have not necessarily innovated, right? So like we said, the booking and the experience of this world, they came with the internet, right? But the internet to the new consumers of travel, and by the way, now the majority, more than 50% of travel is consumed by millennials and Gen Z. So to this generation, the internet is no longer technology, right? The internet to this generation is a utility. It's just like the old telephone line for the previous yeah, yeah. generation. So the way that millennials and Gen Z now make decisions about travel is not, they don't go online on the internet to try to find cab. I mean, so it's they, like they, looking into a phone book to, to exactly. a quarter and then put a quarter in a phone and dial the number. Like it's exactly. so antiquated. Very interesting. I love the analogy. Exactly. And not only that, not only that, they make their decisions on social media. On Instagram, they are mobile all the time. They are looking for curated experiences. So despite the fact that the consumer trends have fundamentally changed, and you see that change in e-commerce, for example, how important is to the major e-commerce companies, social media, etc. But in the travel industry, this innovation hasn't happened. And at the same time, what is happening is that the travel intermediaries, you remember, Mondi is selling through travel intermediaries. These travel intermediaries, these travel experts that we call, they are evolving. So... When Mondi started, the first segment of the market that we disrupted was the travel agents. Now, the travel agent of today is not the same as the travel agent of the 90s. In the 90s, if you wanted to go for a safari, say, in Africa, you would walk inside a shop on High Street. They would pull up the brochures and they would say, choose, right? Now, this is no longer how it works. What we see is the advent of the gig economy. So the travel agent of today or the travel advisor or travel expert of today is a much different animal. Even before the pandemic, it was mostly individuals working from home. That was accelerated by the pandemic because many of these individuals, they either lost their job or they choose to work from home. So the only thing they needed to sell travel is to download the Mondi app, right? They download the Mondi platform and now they have the booking engine. They have their access to the discounted inventory. They have the marketing tools. They have the payment platforms. So we are facilitating this movement into the gig economy. Now, what we are seeing mm. more and more, we are seeing like, part-time teachers or part-time Uber drivers also downloading our app and doing many, many gigs at the same time. So the pandemic has accelerated this shift of basically individuals joining the gig economy. And then the last stage that we saw in the evolution was social media influencers. So social media influencers, the way they engage now with travel companies, we see they come to our hotel, they come to, I don't know, the W Hotel where in Bogota or the JW Marriott in Panama, and they say, I'm going to take a picture of me in your pool and give me two free room nights. 
This is how the influencers on Instagram now are monetizing on these very, very valuable follower networks that they have. But they have no way to transact. They have no way to sell travel. So Mondi is the first one that through its three-dimensional technology is basically giving simplified tools, the same tools that we were giving to the travel intermediaries, the travel experts, the travel agents. We're now giving it to influencers to basically sell travel to their followers. So it's a bit like what Uber did to transport, right? Prior to Uber, you had the taxi drivers and then you have millions of people that they were about to become drivers that just didn't know about it. Same thing. Mondi provided a tool to the travel agents and now is providing it to all these other growing cohorts of influencers, you know, experts, gig economy workers, which is basically leading the transformation that this space needs. And that is one of the reasons that the company has been growing 40% organically every year, 70% this year. And like you mentioned, it already has more than a billion of market cap. So we feel, and I feel personally, that this story is the most exciting and the most interesting, innovative, and high growth that one can find in the travel space. Really interesting, man. I love the innovation piece there and, and taking what is, you know, tech debt, I think is such a great thing that, not a great thing to have if you're running an Expedia, but a great thing to recognize that there's so many companies out there that were built in the 90s and early 2000s, and they're built on old tech and they can't move. It would be an entire rebuild of eBay, an entire rebuild of Expedia, an entire rebuild of, you know, on and on, that that poses a tremendous opportunity for entrepreneurs. And and in this case, in the travel space and looking and saying, how could we turn anybody into the gig economy to resell excess inventory is what I'm hearing. At the discount. At, at a, a discount. discount. Yeah. Exactly. So not only they are winning, but also their followers, their customers in a much more sophisticated technology, because remember... I mean, the online travel agents are two-dimensional technologies. They just have the supplier content, you know, the airlines and the hotel content, and then a consumer comes and buys, right? What we are talking here is a three-dimensional marketplace because you have the airline and the hotel, you have the ultimate traveler, and then you have the travel expert and travel intermediary. Now, the travel intermediary, when this system was built, was built for the travel agent. But again, you can see this triangulation, right? You have to have a technology that can allow the interaction of three different parties, gotcha. right? So yeah. so it's impossible for the existing players that are running two-dimensional B2C platforms to even have this three-dimensional technology. They have to rebuild from scratch the tech, which cost Monday more than $200 million and over a decade to put in place. And even if by some miracle they were able to replicate this technology, they would still have to go to all the airlines and the hotels and convince them to give them access to discounted content, right? Remember, we're connected with nearly all the airlines in the world connected directly to their revenue management software, to their AI system. We have nearly all hotels in the world and all these are the discount, right? So if one of the old players wants to get into our space, they have to replicate the tech. They have to go and convince all the suppliers to give them which they are competing with, right? Remember that the online travel agents are competing with AmericanAirlines.com. They're competing with Mario.com, right? So they need to convince the suppliers to give them access to discount inventory. And then even by some miracle, they were able to do both of these two things they will have to build these networks of thousands and thousands of intermediaries and gig economy workers that it took us over a decade to put together. So there are really high barriers to entry to any of the old legacy players to do what Mondi is currently doing. Fascinating. Let's talk about your additional role within Mondi with the Chief Corporate Strategy and Business Development Officer. I had to look at my notes there because that's a long title. And in that, from the strategy component 
through to the M and A that you said that you're, you know, is, is core to more so acquisitions is core to your growth strategy. I want to talk about that and how you approach acquiring new entities for your growth model and making sure that they're integrated properly. Because I've seen enough horror stories firsthand of go and jam this deal in, you know, oh, it's going to be a creative, you tell the market. And by the time the thing fishes away through and finally gets integrated into the company, it's a disaster. Exactly. So how do you approach this? Exactly. This is the main issue with roll-ups that is mostly basically based on what I call bunker talk, right? So in the case of Mondi, when we acquire companies, the first rule is that we are not buying them to just buy their revenues or to buy their, their EBITDA, right? So the main reason we buy companies is because they have certain pieces, certain components, which are valuable to us and which can accelerate our organic growth. So Mondi is based on, you know, on basically organic growth with the M&A just providing certain pieces that we would have taken us longer to develop internally and is much more efficient to get them, you know, from an acquisition, right? The second thing is because of that, because our strategy, we have an ecosystem, right? The ecosystem has the technology and it has 50,000 travel experts or gig economy workers, travel agents, et cetera, right? So when we buy a company, we basically take their content. Say we buy a small hotel wholesaler, right? It has the content and it's selling that to 500 travel experts, right? So we take the content, we plug it into our ecosystem, and not only now it has this superior technology, but right away you realize extreme revenue synergies because you are not selling that content to 500 travel intermediaries, you are selling it to 50,000, you see? And evidence of that is that the first seven companies we acquired, they grew their revenues four times within a very short period of time of being part of this powerful network effect ecosystem. Now, to your other point, integration is crucial. So it is in the DNA of Mondi to integrate companies that are acquired because we have done it 15 times. We have done it 15 times over an 11-year period, right? So so it's not, oh, give us money and we're going to buy something. It's give us money to execute a proven strategy, which we have been executing 15 times over 11 years, right? And then last but not least, just to complete on that thought, we also make these acquisitions accredibly. So now we trade 14, 15 times next year's EBITDA, right? And if you look at the last acquisition we made, which is an acquisition in Brazil, we bought the company four times 2022 EBITDA. So even if you set the synergies aside, even if you set aside the fact that we're buying valuable components, we are doing it from a finance perspective very, very, very accretively and in a very disciplined manner. Right. Talk to me about the process of integration. And because I imagine, how many employees is Mondi right now? Mondi now has more than a thousand employees. We are headquartered in Austin, Texas, and we have more than a dozen offices around the world. Okay. So, I mean, global company, a thousand people who are, are a part of this team. And every acquisition you make is not going to fit right up at the C-suite top level. You're going to bolt it in somewhere else in the company. What is that integration process? And what is that communication strategy from your level, your management level, throughout the company or where needed to ensure that it's a successful integration. How do you approach that? Yes. So the first thing is that because we have done it 15 times, we have very precise processes of how it's done. And we have very specific individuals that are in charge of different aspects of the integration, right? The other thing is that once we make an acquisition, we evaluate over some period of time, we're not in a rush, 
all the strengths of the company. And we make sure that from a human resources perspective, we don't do anything that would jeopardize the dynamics, the energy, the atmosphere within that organization, right? Like you're not just going to go gut it to grab some synergies. Yeah, okay. Exactly. So, I mean, to give you a simple example, in Brazil, for example, where we made this acquisition is, is the second largest B2B player in Brazil. Another player called CVC, which was the largest player in Brazil, it tried to pursue a similar strategy. It acquired dozens of companies in that geography. And then right away, like you said, they tried to cut. They didn't follow a clear strategy. And then they screwed it up entirely and they're losing their market share. And that's one of the many reasons that Brazil is a very interesting market because it has a collapsing kind of giant. And then there are opportunities for high tech new players with a foothold there to make a lot of damage in terms of acquiring market share. So again, that's an example of how not to integrate. And like I said, again, Mondi has been doing it for 11 years. So there is the DNA and the expertise in cutting out these integration processes. Really interesting. Really interesting. Thanks for kind of taking us behind the scenes in the travel industry there. Now, actually, before I change gears, I do want to ask a question, maybe a segue into the other world of your career. But let's look at the pandemic and how has that affected global traffic and how have there been lasting effects that are really changing and perhaps new opportunities that are coming from this? What have you seen? Yes. So initially, like we discussed before, the pandemic was like a shock. It was the biggest shock in travel industry in our generation. So it was all about gloom and doom. But in the end, just like with the Chinese farmer parable, you know, that we discussed before, in my opinion, the pandemic was the best thing that ever happened to travel. And I'll explain yeah. what I mean by that. Okay. So... If you look at travel, it's benefiting from two very important macro dynamics, okay? On the one hand, the population of the planet is growing, right? And then on the second hand, the percentage of people that travel is growing. To give you a sense, in, in 1950, 25 million traveled around the world. There were 25 million only international travelers. And in 2019, there were 1.5 billion international wow. travelers. And this is still nowhere close to the 8 billion population of the entire planet, right? So in the 1950s, international travel was the privilege of the very, very few. By 2019, it's still a privilege, which is enjoyed by a bigger percentage, which is around 20% of the world's population, right? Now, the issue that you had with travel was that whenever there was some sort of a crisis or a disturbance, take, I don't know, 9 -11, Take, I don't know, swine flu in Mexico, take SARS in Asia, take Zika in Latin America, right? Whenever there was a disturbance or some sort of softening of the market, people would stop traveling either for a few weeks or a few months or a year or two years. And that is what, because travel was perceived to be a luxury, less of the luxury of the 50s where only 25 million people in the whole world travel, but still a luxury. What COVID brought was a paradigm shift. So it accelerated the process of travel becoming not just a luxury, but a real necessity. So this has a very lasting impact. And we are seeing it now, and we will see it over the next few years, whenever there is a softening of the economy or wherever there is war in Ukraine, right? I mean, uh, that would have been a huge issue, you know, for travel if it happened like six, seven, ten years ago. Now what we're seeing is that people are no longer stopped traveling. They continue to travel. It's just that they're trying to find more cost-efficient ways to do it. And this is precisely what Mondi does, right? Giving access to discounted inventory. But the paradigm shift from a demand perspective is that now 
the people do not feel, the general population doesn't feel that travel is a luxury, but it's a necessity. The second impact of COVID was on the supply side, right? So on the demand, you have this paradigm shift. And then on the supply side, effectively what COVID did, it kind of cleared all these zombie companies that were just lingering around, but there was no decisive blow to remove them from the market, right? So now most of these companies are out of the picture. So what has COVID done? It has increased demand in the medium term and the long term, and it eliminated a big part of unhealthy supply. So this combination is truly transformational to an industry, right? Yeah. Isn't it amazing how we look back on the pandemic and arguably it was a really good thing for so many industries? You know, probably the only one that I can think of that was so hard hit was the restaurant industry. And I mean, traditionally highly, you know, mom, pop, very distributed and they couldn't just sustain the way they did. But now people are coming back into the world of tourism or they're coming back in so many ways. So it created some tremendous opportunities and, and real changes in, in our economy. And it's a pretty fascinating case study in itself. I mean, like I said, at the time, everybody thought the main beneficiaries were the online platforms, Zoom, et cetera, et cetera. And th- that proved to be you know, a boon, but just for a year or two, and now everybody's realizing that the biggest shift has happened in travel, hospitality, restaurant business, like you mentioned. Again, Mondi is start testimony to that, right? So domestic travel has recovered entirely. Mondi is more 80% of the business is international travel, which is only 70% still of the pre-pandemic peak. So there is still a lot of way to go with the opening of China, Asia, et cetera. But despite that, you know, we are 170% of our 2019 reported net revenues even though the segment of the market that we are operating has only recovered to 67%. So you are absolutely right. There is a real opportunity in travel, hospitality, et cetera. And in our opinion, this is just the beginning. Amazing. Let's talk about your other pastime, if I can put it that way. Ithaca Capital and investing in and buying hotel properties and other tourist properties, tourism properties. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so the hotel industry is really a fascinating industry because it has the real estate component, but it's much more than real estate, right? A hotel is an operating business. You you have to understand a plethora of disciplines like sales, marketing, finance, strategy, operations, HR, legal, and other elements, right? So the main philosophy of Ithaca Capital is to acquire prime assets in really prime locations that have the potential to be the top hotels in their destination, but which for some reason, such as having a bad brand or a weak operator or they are in need of renovations or there is a dislocation in the market, for any of these reasons, they are nowhere close to their true potential. So we can acquire them at a very attractive valuation. Right? For example, in 2017, we acquired through an orderly bankruptcy process what was the collateral to a bond that was the Trump Hotel in Panama. We removed the underperforming brand and the prior operator. We renovated the property. We converted it into a JW Marriott. We effectively turned around the background and loss-making operation into the market leader of that market, right? Another important element that people miss in hospitality investment is that many times it's not just about the demand, but it's more about how the demand and the supply are in equilibrium. What do I mean by that? So take, for example... You know, an area of the world that you wouldn't expect to have strong demand, like, I don't know, Haiti, right? Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, right? You go to Port-au-Prince, the capital, there is only one hotel. There is only one decent hotel. 
So that hotel is doing amazingly well, not because there yeah. is a lot of strong demand, but just because there is no other supply. So in our thesis, the level of where supply and demand sit at a certain point in time is a crucial component of the investment equation, right? I'll give you an example, the W Hotel in Bogota, right? We bought it uh, just right around the pandemic. It has since been voted by Gondé Nast in two consecutive years as the number one and number two hotel in, in South America. It's an iconic property, but crucially, it is in a segment of the city where there is no other luxury hotel and where there are very high barriers to entry to put in your supply. So demand, like we discussed before in travel, it always grows. The population grows, the percentage of people that travel grow. So demand will grow. It has its ups and downs, but ultimately, in the medium and long term, demand will grow. Now, with demand growing and supply staying fixed, you can understand that in, from a strategic perspective, the success of this hotel is kind of a one-way street. Gotcha. Let's go back to, to the acquisition of hotels. You identify underperforming properties and assemble the capital, bring in the capital, your own money and investors, and go in and actually acquire the entire property itself and then bring in a brand name to operate that. So as I understand, you replaced Trump with JW Marriott in, in your Panama property. Walk me through that whole thing because I, I know there's a story there, but I also want to know some of the, the dynamics of pulling together these deals. Yeah, so we have discretionary capital, right? So we don't need to go, we're structured as a fund, so we don't need to go and raise money for a specific investment. We have raised capital, you know, in 2017 from a number of investors. So we identify specific opportunities. We follow the opportunities over a long period of time. I mean, some of the opportunities we identify now and we transact only six or seven years from now, when is the right time, right? So that particular case, you had a building that is, was actually at the time the tallest building in the whole of Latin America, a really iconic property in the center of Panama on the water. And it was run by a brand that was not ideal and an operator that did not have the capacity and the resources to realize the true potential of this hotel. Now, as it happens at the time, you know, that operator was also a sitting U.S. president, right? So yeah. and that was part of the issue, right? The image of that person in Latin America where this asset is situated wasn't the most positive for a number of reasons involving politics. So from a business perspective, it made no sense to have that brand. That they, In our opinion, they had breached their agreements with the property, so we basically removed that operator and we created value by replacing the brand. Now, in other instances, we don't necessarily need to replace the brand. Maybe we just need to renovate the building. Or okay. maybe there is a big, you know, a big disturbance to the market, just like COVID, for example, and you can buy assets at, at deep discounts to their replacement cost. So we are basically what is called in the space a special situations strategy, where we either buy the loans or we buy the asset itself, but the idea is that we do it at a deep discount to the cost of replacing the asset and the ingredients are there to have a really successful operation. I gotcha. I gotcha. Now, take me per- further into that property. I think it's something people can really, it's easy to understand and relate to or bring to mind when you talk about a Trump property. And let's talk about that being in Latin America, sitting president, all that controversy that was going on back then. What are some of the learning experiences you took out of that? And perhaps there's others that, that come from, from your career, but what do you, there's got to be more stories. Yeah, there is. I mean, it's a fascinating story. I mean, it's, it's covered all over the, the media. I mean, at the time, basically what happened in the middle of that process 
was that Trump, I mean, the company of a sitting president, sued me personally for $200 million, right? As part of that, of that process. Yeah, that's of that's how much? Okay. Which is a lot of money. Now, I mean, many people perceive that as a setback, you know, or a potential failure. Now, there is that quote, you know, from J.K. Rowling's, you know, the, the author of Harry Potter that she says, you know, there cannot be life without failure unless you live your life so safely that you might as well not have lived at all, right? Yeah. So I, I like to reframe that concept of that quote in a more positive way because in my, in my mind, language and how you frame things really matter because they create the atmosphere and the conditions which are the prerequisite, you know, to the growth of a person or the growth of an organization. So in my mind, what I say is that I never lose. I either win or I learn. Right. So, mm. so basically what I learned from that experience was that, I mean, the exact opposite of clarity in my mind is fear. So whenever we make decisions out of fear, we lose clarity. And when you lose clarity, you do not see all the options and you miss many times the best options. Right. Mm. So the initial fear was, oh, a sitting president is suing me for $200 million, right? That's kind of a, if, if you start operating from that level of vibration or, la, or that level of energy, then it clouds your thoughts and, and basically, ultimately, it leads to mistakes or not seeing all the options, right? So, so it's important to cast fear aside and maintain always a high, a high spirit. And, and humor helps many times, right? So I remember people were asking me, oh, are you not scared that the sitting president sued you for $200 million? And then I said, what are you talking about? That's the best thing that ever happened to me. Now everybody thinks that I'm worth at least $200 million. So so, anyway, at the end, the moral of that story was that you should always stay calm. You should appreciate that in life, whatever happens to you, there is just no way for you to know if it's going to be for the good or for the bad in the long run. You cast the fear aside. You weighed all options with a clear mind. And then by doing that, we were able to implement one of the most successful turnarounds in the history of hospitality, we took a deeply loss-making, bankrupt entity, basically, and turned into the undisputed market leader in Panama with a very high profitability. So, so cool. So cool. Talk to me about how you say cast fear aside. When you were in that situation, when you first got served with that lawsuit, did you just accept it and be like, hey, this is great? Or did you go into a, a point of fear and have to work yourself out of it? to find that clarity again? And if so, how did you do that? Yes. So basically the first instinct is to be afraid, right? Because that's how genetically we are programmed, right? To to respond to an adverse impact from our environment with fear. But I think what has helped me a lot is the way the reading that I've been doing, you know, like like we discussed before, you know, I, I had a very academic background. I almost started teaching Roman law, you know, in Oxford, so basically, a topic that is very close to my heart and is associated with this is inspiration, right? So you need, if you are in a dark place, what you need is to find your inspiration. And inspiration is the magic ingredient uh, to everything, you know, to personal growth, to our personal relationships with the people we love, and ultimately to the success of an organization, right? So this was what differentiates a thriving company from a failed business. And so where, like you said, you, you are in this dark place. So where do you look for inspiration, right? Now, if you take a dozen business gurus, you know, or for that matter, a dozen scientists or doctors or academics, and you put them in a room, it's unlikely that you will get a lot of consensus or anything, you know, especially with the polarization, you know, that permeates 
you know, our society these days. So, so the way I extract the clarity of my thought process is through my reading of ancient scripts and ancient wisdom, right? So if you read all the spiritual books, you know, of a number of religions, like the Bhagavad Gita or the scriptures of the ancient Greek philosophers, you know, contrary to, you know, the disagreement and the the lack of consensus that you would find in any sector of or any segment of the economy today, there are many themes in those scriptures in which all the wise men and the true wise men and the mystics of history, they are all in perfect unison, right? They, mm. they all believe the same thing. So there are a number of concepts there which basically are truly, you know, relevant in, in, in situations like that. You know, the first one is, is what we discussed before, you know, that uh, life is really never... I mean, the way that most of the people respond to a, a shock like that is to say, oh, the world is conspiring against me. You know, there is something happening outside me which is attacking me, right? The reality is that the first thing that we have to appreciate is that the world, the universe, whatever you want to call it, is neither good nor bad. It's just is, right? I mean, reality is entirely subjective. So the world is just is, and reality is what you make of it, right? So basically, once you appreciate that concept, it's all about what is happening inside you, not what is happening outside you. So what is happening inside you is creating the right conditions to cast fear aside, is creating the right conditions to be inspirational, is actually creating reality, right? When you're looking at a certain situation, you're not just absorbing what is happening outside you, but in a way, your eyes, your vision is creating reality yes. in a way. Yeah. So this to me is kind of a, you know, one of the concepts where there is a lot of agreement, you know, within the ancient scriptures. And once you realize that, then your life can be transformational, it can be inspirational, and then you, re- you also understand that life is all about the journey, right? It's not about the moment or the objective of, the, of that second, but it's all about maintaining this clarity, casting fear aside, turning every challenge into an opportunity, and ultimately enjoying the journey, right? Which, by the way, is actually my favorite poem. It's called Ithaca by Konstantinos Kavafis, and that's why my company is called Ithaca Capital. Okay. It's actually from my favorite poem, so... Where did you find this or start to develop this philosophy? Was there a a point in life where somebody sat down with you and had a conversation or was it just almost innate in you and you just kind of always had a a very positive attitude or wasn't it an event? I think it's a combination of continuing to read, continuing to meet with people that I find interesting and, you know, enlightened, you know, for lack of of a better word. And it's all about every time that an issue comes, right? You can look at it either as a problem or you can look at it as an opportunity to identify why you feel it's a problem in a way that permanently changes yourself, leading to personal growth, which ultimately not only solves that problem, but is helping you grow. I mean, one of the things that I felt in my my whole life is this conflict that is inside all of us, which is, I call it the conflict between conformity and rebellion, right? So when we are all born, we are all taught to conform, right? We are all taught to follow the rules of society. You know, nobody, I mean, very few people have the kind of parents that they would say, I love you for who you are. It doesn't matter what you do. You are, so most of us, we are trained, we are programmed from a young age to conform. And this, and this is creating a very unhealthy dynamic inside us between conformity and rebellion. So we put artificial deadlines on ourselves 
we foster unreasonable expectations for the people around us. And then, then we try to escape and rebel from that dynamic. So you have this dynamic, conformity, rebellion, right? So I felt that in my whole life, and it's kind of a concept that was fascinating me. And that's one of the triggers of how I came to kind of take a very deep approach to everything. Okay. So once you follow this dynamic, then you are always using the language, I should to, I have to, right? This is not the world you want to be in. You want to be in the world of noble purpose, of joy, of inspiration, you know, that you basically understanding that you basically have to create the right conditions within yourself to grow personally and also allow other people around you, most importantly, your business partners, your employees to similarly grow on a personal, on a professional level, which is something actually which I try to foster in all of our organizations. So really interesting. How about mentorship? I think that it can be a very powerful and pivotal. These relationships can be very pivotal to people's careers and people's lives. Have you had mentors in your life? And what was that like? Yes. So in many instances, I, I was, you know, very privileged to meet individuals that changed my life in many ways. I mean, I discussed how I, I, I made my decision not to become an academic. You remember from that joke that we said in the beginning? <laughs> Five million pounds. Yeah. Exactly. Then, I mean, I was lucky to have met some of the most, you know, influential academics whilst in Oxford. Then when I was in Clifford Chance, I worked on a number of cases, you know, the law firm, including the seminal case of the European Commission against Microsoft, which was actually the biggest uh, case in the European Union at the time in 2003, 2004, 2005. Yeah, as part of that case, I met, you know, sort of prominent economists, uh, Nobelists that were expert witnesses in that case. Then, you know, all the way in the different private equity positions that I held, you know, I started originally as an associate, a director. I was working directly with the partners and the founders of the firms. So I wouldn't say that I have one single mentor, but I was privileged to meet many people and extract, you know, the wisdom, small pieces of wisdom from many of them over a long period of time. And that's what I try to do also within our, organi our organizations, right? We, to inspire. That's the biggest difference. I mean, to me, the most important word in the vocabulary of any organization is inspiration. Okay. This is what differentiates success from failure, yeah. you know? So this is what I am, I'm trying to do, to lead an inspired life, you know? Awesome. Awesome. Really, really interesting. I didn't expect our conversation to go here. It's really neat to, to get to understand the person behind these deals and, and behind the company and, and, and Ithaca Capital. So I really appreciate that. What about reading or media that you consume? What do you like to, to put your mind to, aside from the, the, the ancient scriptures? Yeah, I would call myself like an omnivorous reader, right? So, so I read everything. I read everything from economics to law to politics I digest content in a much more kind of traditional manner in the sense of reading. I feel that when I consume content either on a television or, or hearing, to me is much less effective than reading. And again, this is the way that I was programmed and the way I, my, my, my academic life has kind of shaped. I mean, I understand now the new generations, the millennials, etc. They consume content more on podcasts, on social media, which is their way of, of getting inspired. But in my case, it's all about reading, you know, reading books on anything from philosophy to economics, to politics, to music, to literature, I read poems, you know. So basically I consume everything and I try to find a parallel in everything. 
right? That's another deep kind of idea that I have that everything is linked, right? So, yes. I mean, I was reading the Bhagavad Gita, you know, which is the holy uh, book of the, of the Indian, you know, of the Indian civilization, partly because the founder of Mondi is of Indian origin, right? So I thought, okay, let, it's important to learn about the culture, you know, my partner in this transaction, and then, and then I saw all the similarities, right? All the similarities with the concepts of Socrates and, and of ancient Greece, of knowing yourself, understanding yourself. So I always, basically, I see knowledge as a web. And then the more you consume in a way that you can interconnect and relate to everything, the more you can have a very unique perspective, yes. you know, of the world, of politics, of society, of, of culture, of, of economics, of business. That reminds me of one of my favorite books. It's called Mental Models. But it really talks about the different ways in which our brain can apply models to consuming information and to really internalizing and then putting it back to work. And so, yeah, it's a great book. If you a favorite book for you, what would come to mind? That's a difficult one because I have a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of amazing books that I went through my, uh, you know, through my studies. I mean, a recent one I read a few years ago in economics is called Free Economics, which is a great book. It's very intuitive, very, in some ways, counterintuitive. I mean, I would say also the Iliad and the Odyssey, you know, my name comes from an ancient Greek tragedy. So, I, you know, like I said, I focus more on the, the ancient wisdom. But again, modern books, there is a lot of, you know, a lot of it coming, a lot of interesting reading there. So Excellent. I can't, we've, we've hit our hour. We've already up to top of our hour. Any final thoughts for the audience? If looking and speaking to management teams, CEOs, IR pros, and, and so on, what would final thoughts be for you? Yeah, I mean, the concept of inspiration, I think I would like to highlight it again. And that's basically one of the main reasons. Like, I'm the founder and, and the managing partner of a, of, a, of a large private equity fund that invests in hospitality and travel. And yet, I spend a lot of, of my time on one investment, right, on Monday, right? I'm on the board, you know, I help with M&A, strategy, et cetera. Why? Because I like it. Because I think it is the most exciting story out there, you know, for travel technology. So, you know, the growth, the profitability of the company, the barriers to entry we discussed, you know, the fact that it's, it, 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 it benefits from favorable macro dynamics. So what I would say to people is find not only what you are good at, but what you ultimately fulfills you and follow that path. Because at the end of the day, I mean, the Western society has been kind of reduced to achieving a series of objectives, right? We have an objective, we achieve it. We have another objective, we achieve it. This is not the most fulfilling way to live your life. I mean, you always have to have a noble purpose, something which is kind of your star to drive you in this process. Because once, if you frame your life as a series of objectives, you end up again in this, what we discussed before, conformity rebellion kind of dynamic, right? You you put a deadline to yourself, I have to do that, you conform. Then so you're, you are looking for a series of instant gratifications as opposed to having a big, a big kind of dream, which is what is driving your journey, right? And only if you have this kind of dynamic, this kind of mentality, you get to excel. I mean, one of my favorite stories is General Montgomery, you know, the, one of the most successful generals in the, in the Second World War. There was this famous battle of El Alamein, you know, in Africa, in Egypt. Actually, my grandfather fought in that, uh, in that battle. Okay. And... Between the first and the second battle of El Alamein, you know, everybody, you know, the, the allies were kind of, oh, what are we going to do? They, everybody was scared. So Montgomery comes, he stands on the hill, and he starts giving like a, a, a speech to, to, to the troops. And everybody thought he was going to tell them about strategy or about the motherland. So the guy stands there and says, look, I'm not going to tell you about anything. 
The only thing I'm going to tell you, I don't like the atmosphere here. My role here in, in, as the leader of these tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops is not to tell you about strategies, not to tell you about how to fight, is to create the right atmosphere and the right conditions for things to happen. So that is the most important part within an organization to create the right mentality, the right conditions, the right atmosphere for this magic to happen. You know, because if you think about it, at the end of the day, when a company starts, it's always against odds, right? If somebody thinks rationally, they would never start a new company, yeah. right? The odds against you are always more than uh, the chances of success. That's why so few companies succeed relative to the many startups that start. So the only thing that differentiates success from failure is this vision, this energy, this atmosphere within our organization. Wow. I really appreciate those thoughts. And, and I'm just going to step back into, geez, almost 20 some years. I was the concierge at the Western Grand in Vancouver. And one of my hands down favorite jobs that I've ever had. And the atmosphere within from the management team there was to always deliver an incredible experience for our guests. And my job day in, day out was to make people happy. And now when I look back from your words here, the atmosphere of the management team enabled us to do that and empowered us to do that. And it created a remarkable working environment in the hospitality industry. So a good little, you know, trot down memory lane there for me. And otherwise, I just want to say thank you. What a great interview. Really have enjoyed our time. Thank you, Corey. Thank you for your time. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to get to know you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.